Section 19 of London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew. Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Street Folk. Part 19. Irish Lodging Houses for Immigrants. Often an Irish immigrant, whose object is to settle in London, arrives by the cork steamer without knowing a single friend to whom he can apply for house-room or assistance of any kind. Sometimes a whole family is landed late at night, worn out by sickness and the terrible fatigues of a three days deck-passage, almost paralysed by exhaustion, and scarcely able to speak English enough to inquire for shelter till morning. If the immigrants, however, are bound for America, their lot is very different. Then they are consigned to some agent in London, who is always on the wharf at the time the steamer arrives, and takes the strangers to the homes he has prepared for them, until the New York packet starts. During the two or three days' necessary stay in London, they are provided for at the agent's expense, and no trouble is experienced by the travellers. A large provision merchant in the city told me that he often, during the season, has as many as five hundred Irish consigned to him by one vessel, so that to lead them to their lodgings was like walking at the head of a regiment of recruits. The necessities of the immigrants in London have caused several of their countrymen to open lodging-houses in the courts about Rosemary Lane. These men attend the coming in of the cork steamer, and seek for customers among the poorest of the poor after the manner of touters to a seaside hotel. The immigrants' houses are of two kinds, clean and dirty. The better class of Irish lodging-houses almost startle one by the comfort and cleanliness of the rooms, for after the descriptions you hear of the state in which the deck-passengers are landed from the Irish boats, their clothes stained with the manure of the pigs and drenched with the spray, you somehow expect to find all the accommodations disgusting and unwholesome, but one in particular that I visited had the floor clean and sprinkled with red sand, while the windows were sound, bright, and transparent. The hobs of the large fireplace were piled up with bright tin pots, and the chimney-piece was white and red with the china images ranged upon it. In one corner of the principal apartment, there stood two or three boxes still corded up and with bundles strung to the sides and against the wall was hung a bunch of blue cloaks such as the irish women wear the proprietor of the house who was dressed in a grey tail-coat and knee-breeches that had somewhat the effect of a footman's livery told me that he had received seven lodgers the day before but six were men and they were all out seeking for work in front of the fire sat a woman bending over it so close that the bright cotton gown she had on smelt of scorching her feet were bare and she held the soles of them near to the bars curling her toes about with the heat she was a short thick-set woman with a pair of wonderfully muscular arms crossed over her bosom and her loose rusty hair streaming over her neck it was in vain that i spoke to her about her journey for she wouldn't answer me but kept her round open eyes fixed on my face, with a wild, nervous look, following me about with them everywhere. Across the room hung a lion with the newly washed and well-patched clothes of the immigrants hanging to it. 
on a side table were the six yellow basins that had been used for the men's breakfasts during my visit the neighbours having observed a strange gentleman enter came pouring in each proffering some new bit of news about their newly arrived countrymen i was nearly stunned by half a dozen voices speaking together and telling me how the poor people had been four days at say so that they were glad to get near the pigs for warmth and instructing me as to the best manner of laying out the sum of money that it was supposed i was about to shower down upon the immigrants in one of the worst class of lodging-houses i found ten human beings living together in a small room the apartment was entirely devoid of all furniture excepting an old mattress rolled up against the wall and a dirty piece of cloth hung across one corner to screen the women whilst dressing an old man the father of five out of the ten was seated on a tea-chest mending shoes and the other men were looking on with their hands in their pockets two girls and a woman were huddled together on the floor in front of the fire talking in irish all these people seemed to be utterly devoid of energy and the men moved about so lazily that i couldn't help asking some of them if they had tried to obtain work every one turned to a good-looking young fellow lolling against the wall as if they expected him to answer for them ah sure and that they have was the reply it's the docks they have tried worse luck the others appeared struck with the truthfulness of the answer for they all shook their heads and said sure and that's truth anyhow here my irish guide ventured an observation by remarking solemnly it's no use telling a lie to which the whole room assented by exclaiming altogether through for you nora the chosen spokesman then told me they paid half a crown a week for the room and that was as much as they could earn and it was starve they should if the neighbours didn't help them a bit i asked them if they were better off over here than when in ireland but could get no direct answer for my question only gave rise to a political discussion there's plenty of food over here said the spokesman addressing his companions as much as myself plenty of taties plenty of mate plenty of pork but where the use observed my guide if there's no money to buy em wit to which the audience muttered through for you again nora and so it went on each one pleading poverty in the most eloquent style after i had left the young fellow who had acted as spokesman followed me into the street and taking me into a corner told me that he was a sailor by trade but had lost his registration ticket or he'd have got on a berth long since and that it was all for three shillings and sixpence he wasn't at say concerning the number of irish immigrants i have obtained the following information the great influx of the irish into london was in the year of the famine eighteen forty seven to eight this cannot be better shown than by citing the returns of the number of persons admitted into the asylum for the houseless poor in playhouse yard cripplegate these returns i obtained for fourteen years and the average number of admissions of the applicants from all parts during that time was eight thousand seven hundred and ninety four yearly of these the irish averaged two thousand four hundred and fifty five yearly 
or considerably more than a fourth of the whole number received. The total number of applicants thus sheltered in the fourteen years was 130,625, of which the Irish numbered 34,378. The smallest number of Irish, men, women, and children, admitted was in 1834-5, about 300. In 1846-7 it was as many as 7,576, while in 1847-8 it was 10,756, and in 1848-9 5,068. But it was into Liverpool that the tide of immigration flowed the strongest in the calamitous year of the famine. Between the 13th of January and the 13th of December, both inclusive, writes Mr. Rushton, the Liverpool magistrate, to Sir G. Gray on the 21st of April last, 296,231 persons landed in this port, Liverpool, from Ireland. Of this vast number, about 130,000 emigrated to the United States, some 50,000 were passengers on business, and the remainder, 161,231, mere paupers, half-naked and starving, landed for the most part during the winter, and became immediately on landing applicants for parochial relief. You already know the immediate results of this accumulation of misery in the crowded town of Liverpool, of the cost of relief at once rendered necessary to prevent the thousands of hungry and naked Irish perishing in our streets, and also of the cost of the pestilence which generally follows in the train of famine and misery such as we then had to encounter. Hundreds of patients perished, notwithstanding all efforts made to save them, and ten Roman Catholic and one Protestant clergyman, many parochial officers, and many medical men, who devoted themselves to the task of alleviating the sufferings of the wretched, died in the discharge of these high duties. Great numbers of these people were at the same time also conveyed from Ireland to Wales, especially to Newport. They were brought over by coal vessels as a return cargo, a living ballast, two shillings and sixpence being the highest fare, and were huddled together like pigs. The manager of the Newport Tramp House has stated, concerning these people, they don't live long, diseased as they are. They're very remarkable. They will eat salt by basins full, and drink a great quantity of water after. I have frequently known those who could not have been hungry eat cabbage leaves and other refuse from the ash heap. It is necessary that I should thus briefly allude to this matter, as there is no doubt that some of these people, making their way to London, soon became street-sellers there, and many of them took to the business subsequently, when there was no employment in harvesting, hop-picking, and so on. Of the poor wretches landed at Liverpool, many, Mr. Rushton states, became beggars, and many thieves. Many, there is no doubt, tramped their way to London, sleeping at the casual wards of the unions on their way. But I believe that, of those who had become habituated to the practice of beggary or theft, few or none would follow the occupation of street-selling, as even the half-passive industry of such a calling would be irksome to the apathetic and dishonest. 
of the immigration direct by the vessels trading from ireland to london there are no returns such as has been collected by mr rushton for liverpool but the influx is comparatively small on account of the greater length and cost of the voyage during the last year i am informed that fifteen thousand or sixteen thousand passengers were brought from ireland to london direct and in addition to these five hundred more were brought over from cork in connection with the arrangements for emigration to the united states and consigned to the emigration agent here of the fifteen thousand five hundred taking the mean between the two numbers above given one thousand emigrated to the united states it appears on the authority of mr rushton that even in the great year of the immigration more than one-sixth of the passengers from ireland to dublin came on business it may then be reasonable to calculate that during last year one-fourth at least of the passengers to london had the same object in view leaving about ten thousand persons who have either emigrated to british north america australia and so on or have resorted to some mode of subsistence in the metropolis or the adjacent parts besides these there are the numbers who make their way up to london tramping it from the several provincial ports namely liverpool bristol newport and glasgow of these i have no means of forming any estimate or of the proportion who adopt street selling on their arrival here all that can be said is that the influx of irish into the street trade every year must be very considerable i believe however that only those who have friends in the line resort to street selling on their arrival in london though all may make it a resource when other endeavours fail the great immigration into london is from cork the average cost of a deck passage being five shillings the immigrants direct to london from cork are rarely of the poorest class of the diet drink and expense of living of the street irish the diet of the irish men women and children who obtain a livelihood or what is so designated by street sale in london has i am told on good authority experienced a change in the lodging-houses that they resorted to their breakfast two or three years ago was a dish of potatoes two three or four pounds or more in weight for a family now half an ounce of coffee half chicory costs a halfpenny and that with the half or quarter of a loaf according to the number in family is almost always their breakfast at the present time when their constant diet was potatoes there were frequent squabbles at the lodging-houses to which many of the poor irish on their first arrival resort as to whether the potato-pot or the tea-kettle should have the preference on the fire a man of superior intelligence who had been driven to sleep and eat occasionally in lodging-houses told me of some dialogues he had heard on these occasions it's about three years ago he said since i heard a bitter old englishwoman say to with your tatey pot they're only meat for pigs sure thin said a young irishman he was a nice acute fellow sure thin ma'am i should be after offering you a taste i heard that myself sir you may have noticed that when an irishman doesn't get out of temper he never loses his politeness or rather his blarney the dinner or second meal of the day assuming that there has been a breakfast ordinarily consists of cheap fish and potatoes of the diet of the poor street irish 
I had an account from a little Irishman, then keeping an oyster stall, though he generally sold fruit. In all such details I have found the Irish far more communicative than the English. Many a poor, untaught Englishman will shrink from speaking of his spare diet and his trouble to procure that. A reserve, too, much more noticeable among the men than the women. My Irish informant told me he usually had his breakfast at a lodging-house. He preferred a lodging-house, he said, on account of the warmth and the society. Here he boiled half an ounce of coffee, costing a halfpenny. He purchased of his landlady the fourth of a quartern loaf, note a penny farthing or a penny halfpenny, end note, for she generally cut a quartern loaf into four for her single men lodgers, such as himself, clearing sometimes a farthing or two thereby. For dinner, my informant boiled at the lodging-house two or three pounds of potatoes, costing usually a penny or a penny farthing, and fried three or four herrings, or as many as cost a penny. He sometimes mashed his potatoes and spread over them the herrings, the fatty portion of which flavoured the potatoes, which were further flavoured by the rows of the herrings being crushed into them. He drank water to this meal, and the cost of the whole was twopence or twopence halfpenny. A neighbouring stall-keeper attended to this man's stock in his absence at dinner, and my informant did the same for him in his turn. For tea he expended a penny on coffee or a penny halfpenny on tea, being a cup of tea or half-pint of coffee at a coffee-shop. Sometimes he had a half-penny worth of butter, and with his tea he ate the bread he had saved from his breakfast, and which he had carried in his pocket. He had no butter to his breakfast, he said, for he could not buy less than a pennyworth about where he lodged, and this was too dear for one meal. On a Sunday morning, however, he generally had butter, sometimes joining with a fellow lodger for a pennyworth. For his Sunday dinner he had a piece of meat, which cost him twopence on the Saturday night. Supper he dispensed with, but if he felt much tired he had a half-pint of beer, which was three farthings, in his own jug before he went to bed, about nine or ten, as he did little or nothing late at night except on Saturday. He thus spent fourpence halfpenny a day for food, and reckoning twopence halfpenny extra for somewhat better fare on a Sunday, his board was two shillings and tenpence a week. His earnings he computed at five shillings, and thus he had two shillings and twopence weekly for other expenses. Of these there was one shilling for lodging, twopence or threepence for washing, but this not every week, a halfpenny for a Sunday morning's shave, a penny for his religion, as he worded it, and sixpence for odds and ends, such as thread to mend his clothes, a piece of leather to patch his shoes, worsted to darn his stockings, and so on. He was subject to rheumatism, or he might have saved a trifle of money. Judging by his methodical habits, it was probable he had done so, he had nothing of the eloquence of his countrymen, and seemed, indeed, of rather a morose turn. A family boarding together live even cheaper than this man, for more potatoes and less fish fall to the share of the children. A meal, too, is not unfrequently saved in this manner. If a man, his wife, and two children all go out in the streets selling, they breakfast before starting and perhaps agree to reassemble at four o'clock. Then the wife prepares the dinner of fish and potatoes, and so tea is dispensed with, 
In that case, the husband's and wife's board would be fourpence or fourpence halfpenny a day each, the children's threepence or threepence halfpenny each, and giving a penny halfpenny extra to each for Sunday, the weekly cost is ten shillings and threepence. Supposing the husband and wife cleared five shillings a week each, and the children each three shillings, their earnings would be sixteen shillings. The balance is the surplus left to pay rent, washing, firing, and clothing. From what I can ascertain, the Irish street-seller can always live at about half the cost of the English costermonger. The Englishman must have butter for his bread, and meat at no long intervals, for he hates fish more than once a week. It is by this spareness of living, as well as by frequently importunate and mendacious begging, that the street Irish manage to save money. The diet I have spoken of is generally, but not universally, that of the poor street Irish. Those who live differently do not, as a rule, incur greater expense. It is difficult to ascertain in what proportion the Irish street-sellers consume strong drink when compared with the consumption of the English costers, as a poor Irishman, if questioned on that or any subject, will far more frequently shape his reply to what he thinks will please his querist and induce a trifle for himself than answer according to the truth. The landlord of a large public-house, after inquiring of his assistants, that his opinions might be checked by theirs, told me that, in one respect, there was a marked difference between the beer-drinking of the two people. He considered that, in the poor streets near his house, there were residing quite as many Irish street-sellers and labourers as English, but the instances in which the Irish conveyed beer to their own rooms, as a portion of their meals, was not as one in twenty compared with the English. "'I've read your work, sir,' he said, "'and I know that you're quite right in saying that the costermongers go for a good Sunday dinner. I don't know what my customers are except by their appearance, but I do know that many are costermongers, and by the best of all proofs, for I have bought fish, fruit, and vegetables of them. Well, now, we'll take a fine Sunday in spring or summer, when times are pretty good with them.' and perhaps in the ten minutes after my doors are opened at one on the Sunday there are a hundred customers for their dinner beer. Nearly three-quarters of these are working men and their wives, working either in the streets or at their indoor trades, such as tailoring. But among the number I am satisfied there are not more than two Irishmen. There may be three or four Irish women, but one of my barmen tells me he knows that two of them, very well-behaved and good-looking women, are married to Englishmen. In my opinion, the proportion as to Sunday dinner beer between English and Irish may be two or three in seventy. An Irish gentleman and his wife, who are both well acquainted with the habits and condition of the people in their own country, informed me that among the classes who, though earning only scant incomes, could not well be called impoverished, the use of beer, or even of small ale, known now or recently as thunder's thrupney was very unfrequent even in many independent families only water is drunk at dinner with punch to follow this shows the accuracy of the information i derived from mr blank the innkeeper for persons unused to the drinking of malt liquor in their own country are not likely to resort to it afterwards when their means are limited 
i was further informed that reckoning the teetotalers among the english street sellers at three hundred there are six hundred among the irish teetotalers too who having taken the pledge under the sanction of their priests and looking upon it as a religious obligation keep it rigidly the irish street sellers who frequent the gin palaces or public houses drink a pot of beer in a company of three or four but far more frequently a quartern of gin very seldom whisky oftener than do the english indeed from all i could ascertain the irish street sellers whether from inferior earnings their early training or the restraints of their priests drink less beer by one-fourth than their english brethren but a larger proportion of gin and you must bear this in mind sir i was told by an innkeeper i had rather have twenty poor englishmen drunk in my tap-room than a couple of poor irishmen they'll quarrel with anybody the irish will and sometimes clear the room by swearing they'll use their knives by jesus and if there's a scuffle they'll kick like devils and scratch and bite like women or cats instead of using their fists i wish all the drunkards were teetotalers if it were only to be rid of them whisky i was told would be drunk by the irish in preference to gin were it not that gin was about half the price one old irish fruit seller who admitted that he was fond of a glass of gin told me that he had not tasted whisky for fourteen years because of the price the irish moreover as i have shown live on stronger and coarser food than the english buying all the rough bad fish for to use the words of one of my informants they look to quantity more than quality this may account for their preferring a stronger and fiercer stimulant by way of drink of the resources of the street irish as regards stock money sickness burials and so on it is not easy to ascertain from the poor irish themselves how they raise their stock money for their command of money is a subject on which they are not communicative or if communicative not truthful my opinion is said an irish gentleman to me that some of these poor fellows would declare to god that they hadn't the value of a halfpenny even if you heard the silver chink in their pockets it is certain that they never or very rarely borrow of the usurers like their english brethren the more usual custom is that if a poor irish street seller be in want of five shillings it is lent to him by the more prosperous people of his court bricklayers labourers or other working men who club one shilling apiece this is always repaid an irish bricklayer when in full work will trust a needy countryman with some article to pledge on the understanding that it is to be redeemed and returned when the borrower is able sometimes if a poor irish woman needs one shilling to buy oranges four others only less poor than herself because not utterly penniless will readily advance threepence each money is also advanced to the deserving irish through the agency of the roman catholic priests who are the medium through whom charitable persons of their own faith exercise good offices money too there is no doubt is often advanced out of the priest's own pocket on all the kinds of loans 
with which the poor Irish are aided by their countrymen, no interest is ever charged. "'I don't like the Irish,' said an English costermonger to me, "'but they do stick to one another far more than we do.' The Irish costers hire barrows and shallows like the English, but if they get on at all they will possess themselves of their own vehicles much sooner than an English costermonger. A quick-witted Irishman will begin to ponder on his paying one shilling and sixpence a week for the hire of a barrow worth twenty shillings, and he will save and hoard until a pound is at his command to purchase one for himself, while an obtuse English coster, note, who will yet buy cheaper than an Irishman, end note, will probably pride himself on his cleverness in having got the charge for his barrow reduced in the third year of its hire to one shilling a week the twelve-month round. In cases of sickness, the mode of relief adopted is similar to that of the English. A raffle is got up for the benefit of the Irish sufferer, and, if it be a bad case, the subscribers pay their money without caring what trifle they throw for, or whether they throw at all. If sickness continue, and such means as raffles cannot be persevered in, there is one resource from which a poor Irishman never shrinks, the parish. He will apply for, and accept, parochial relief without the least sense of shame, a sense which rarely deserts an Englishman who has been reared apart from paupers. The English costers appear to have a horror of the Union. If the Irishman be taken into the workhouse, his friends do not lose sight of him. In case of his death, they apply for, and generally receive, his body from the parochial authorities, undertaking the expense of the funeral, when the body is duly waked. "'I think there's a family contract among the Irish,' said a costermonger to me. "'That's where it is.' The Irish street-folk are, generally speaking, a far more provident body of people than the English street-sellers. To save, the Irish will often sacrifice what many Englishmen consider a necessary, and undergo many a hardship. From all I could ascertain, the saving of an Irish street-seller does not arise from any wish to establish himself more prosperously in his business, but for the attainment of some cherished project, such as emigration. Some of the objects, however, for which these struggling men hoard money, are of the most praiseworthy character. They will treasure up halfpenny after halfpenny, and continue to do so for years, in order to send money to enable their wives and children, and even their brothers and sisters, when in the depth of distress in Ireland, to take shipping for England. They will save to be able to remit money for the relief of their aged parents in Ireland. They will save to defray the expense of their marriage, an expense the English costermonger so frequently dispenses with but they will not save to preserve either themselves or their children from the degradation of a workhouse. Indeed, they often, with the means of independence secreted on their persons, apply for parish relief, and that principally to save the expenditure of their own money. Even when detected in such an attempt at extortion, an Irishman betrays no passion and hardly manifests any emotion. He has speculated and failed. Not one of them, but has a positive genius for begging, both the taste and the faculty for alms-seeking, developed to an extraordinary extent. Of the amount 
saved by the patience of the poor Irishman, I can form no conjecture. Of the History of Some Irish Street Sellers In order that the following statements might be as truthful as possible, I obtained permission to use the name of a Roman Catholic clergyman, to whom I am indebted for much valuable information touching this part of my subject. A young woman, of whose age it was not easy to form a conjecture, her features were so embrowned by exposure to the weather, and, perhaps, when I saw her, a little swollen from cold, gave me the following account as to her living. Her tone and manner betrayed indifference to the future, caused, perhaps, by ignorance, for uneducated persons, I find, are apt to look on the future as if it must needs be but a repetition of the present while the past in many instances is little more than a blank to them this young woman said her brogue being little perceptible though she spoke thickly i live by keeping this fruit stall it's a poor living when i see how others live yes in truth sir but it's thankful i am for to be able to live at all at all truth it is in these sore times my father and mother are both dead god be gracious to their souls they was evicted the family of us was the thatch of the bitter home was took off above our heads and we were lift to the wide world yes indeed sir and in the open air too the rent wasn't paid and it couldn't be paid and so we had to face the wither it was a sorrowful time but god was good and so was the neighbours and when we saw the priest he was a friend to us, and we came to this country, though I'd always heard it called a black country. Sure, and there's much in it to endure. There's goings on in it, sir, that the priest, God reward him, wouldn't like to see. There's bad ways. I won't talk about them, and I'm sure you are too much of a gentleman to ask me, for if you know, Father, blank, that shows you are the best of gentlemen, sure. It was the eviction that brought us here. I don't know about where we was just, not in what county nor parish. I was so young when we left the land. I believe I'm now nineteen, perhaps only eighteen. She certainly looked much older, but I have often noticed that of her class. I can't be more, I think, for sure and it's only five or six years since we left Waterford and come to Bristol. I'm sure it was Waterford and a beautiful place it is and i know it was bristol we come to we walked all the long way to london my parents died of the cholera and i live with myself but my aunt lodges me and sees to me she sells in the streets too i don't make sevenpence a day i may make sixpence there is a good many young people i know is now selling in the streets because they was evicted in their own country I suppose they had nowhere else to come to. I'm never out of a night. I sleep with my aunt, and we keep to ourselves, sure. I very seldom taste mate, but perhaps I do, oftener than before we was evicted. Glory be to God. One Irish street seller I saw informed me that she was a, a widdy with three children. Her husband died about four years since. She had then five children and was near her confinement with another. Since the death of her husband, she had lost three of her children. A boy about twelve years died of stoppage on his lungs, brought on, she said, 
through being in the streets and shouting so loud to get sale of the fruit she has been in clare street clare market seven years with a fruit stall in the summer she sells green fruit which she purchases at covent garden when the nuts oranges and so on come in season she furnishes her stall with that kind of fruit and continues to sell them until the spring salad comes in during the spring and summer her weekly average income is about five shillings but the remaining portion of the year her income is not more than three shillings and sixpence weekly so that taking the year through her average weekly income is about four shillings and threepence out of this she pays one shilling and sixpence a week rent leaving only two shillings and ninepence a week to find necessary comforts for herself and family for fuel the children go to the market and gather up the waste walnuts bring them home and dry them and these with a pennyworth of coal and coke serve to warm their chilled feet and hands they have no bedstead but in one corner of a room is a flock bed upon the floor with an old sheet blanket and quilt to cover them at this inclement season there is neither chair nor table a stool serves for the chair and two pieces of board upon some baskets do duty for a table and an old penny tea canister for a candlestick she had parted with every article of furniture to get food for her family she received nothing from the parish but depended upon the sale of her fruit for her living the irish men who are in this trade are also very poor and i learned that both irish men and irish women left the occupation now and then and took to begging as a more profitable calling often going begging this month and fruit selling the next this is one of the causes which prompt the london costermongers dislike of the irish they'll beg themselves into a meal and work us out of one said an english coster to me some of them are however less poverty-struck a word in common use among the costermongers but these for the most part are men who have been in the trade for some years and have got regular pitches the woman who gave me the following statement seemed about twenty-two or twenty-three she was large-boned and of heavy figure and deportment her complexion and features were both coarse but her voice had a softness even in its broadest brogue which is not very frequent among poor irish women the first sentence she uttered seems to me tersely to embody a deplorable history of the poverty of a day it was between six and seven in the evening when i saw the poor creature sure then sir it's threepence i've taken to-day and twopence is to pay for my night's lodging i shall do no more good to-night and shall only stay in the cold if i stay in it for nothing i'm an orphan sir she three or four times alluded to this circumstance and there is nobody to care for me but god glory be to his name i came to london to join my brother that had come over and did well and he sent for me but when i got here i couldn't find him in it anyhow i don't know how long that's ago it may be five years it may be ten but she added with the true eloquence of beggary sure then sir i had no heart to keep count if i knew how my father and mother wasn't able to keep me nor to keep themselves in ireland and so i was sent over here they was a country people i don't know about their landlord they died not long after i come here 
I don't know what they died of, but sure it was of the will of God, and they hadn't much to make them love this world. No more have I. Would I like to go back to my own country? Well, then, what would be the use? I sleep at a lodging-house, and it's a decent place. It's mostly my own countrywomen that's in it, that is in the women's part. I pay a shilling a week, that's tuppence a night, for I'm not charged for Sundays. I live on bread and taties and salt, and a herring sometimes. I never taste beer, and not often tea. But I sit here all day, and I feel the hunger this day and that day. It goes off, though, if I have nothing to eat. I don't know why, but I won't deny the goodness of God to bring such a thing about. I have lived for a day on a penny, sir, a halfpenny for bread and a halfpenny for a herring, or two herrings for a halfpenny and taties for the place of bread. I've changed apples for a herring with a poor man, God reward him. Sometimes I make on to sixpence a day, and sometimes I have made one shilling and sixpence, but I think that I don't make fivepence a day. Ah, no thin, sir. One day with the other, and I don't work on Sunday, not often. If I've no mate to eat, I'd rather rest. I never miss mass on a Sunday. A lady gives me a rag sometimes, but the bitter time is coming. If I were sick, I don't know what I'd do, but I would send for the priest, and he'd counsel me. I could read a little once, but I can't now. End of section 19